With that said, please open your Bible to the book of Mark. We're going to be in this book for a while. And uh, I've been listening through the book of Mark in audio form as a way to kind of prepare my heart and my mind for this. And in a lot of ways, this message today is going to have a lot of background because a lot of ways to set us up for the rest of the book. But I want to start by reading the text, then we're going to pray, and then we'll go into the message. Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. For John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Father God, we're thankful for the privilege to come and gather today to sing to you and to hear your word. And Lord, I pray that you can be with us as we look through this text. Allow us to be people who are not just gathering knowledge for the sake of knowing things, but to know things about you to hope that we can grow in our affections for you. Lord, transform our lives and give us uh, attentive hearts and minds so that as we go through this text uh, that we're convicted, Lord, move us through the power and work of the Holy Spirit to conform our lives to your word, Lord. Thank you for this time that we have today. In your son's precious name, amen. Your life is just filled with preparations. Uh, especially since we're going to the new year, we just finished all the holiday seasons. I know some of you had a, a lot of things that you prepared for, whether it's for a family event or Christmas holidays or planning gifts and cards for one another. Life is just a series of things that we're just preparing for. Some of you guys are students here, and that's what you're going to school for. You're being prepared for something that, uh, that you will do in the future. You're studying all the things that you're studying for in hopes that you could be prepared for the workforce. Whatever field you're in, you're preparing for that here and now when you're in school. Some of you guys are parents or aspire to be parents. And as a parent, you understand that when you're parenting, you're really preparing them for life. You're teaching them things about the world and how things work. You shepherd them. You discipline them so that they can function in this life when you are gone. And we understand that life is just a series of preparation from one thing to another. And when we think about the context of things like evangelism, we know that the Lord prepares all of us in the context of the church. The reason why, or one of the reasons why, we go to Bible studies, we have devotional times, and we have small groups, we go to church. The reason why we do all of those things is because it's supposed to prepare us for something greater. We don't study God's word for the sake of just studying, but we actually study because it conforms our mind, it changes our character, so our lives can be aligned to the word of God. We're prepared to do something. And I think the reason why we're left here, one of the primary reasons, is that we are supposed to go and tell other people about Jesus Christ. We're called and commissioned by the Lord to make disciples of all nations. And one of the hopes that I have for all of us in this fellowship group and in this Bible study is that as we go through this book, that you do become a stronger and a better evangelist that you are preparing through understanding the word of God so that you could be able to explain your faith to other people. And I think in a lot of ways, the book of Mark is the most gospel or evangelistic type gospel. It has a lot of, it's it's the shortest of all the gospel and it's supposed to really give you all the information that you need to know about Jesus Christ. 
So how can we be prepared to be a good evangelist? I think this intro portion, this prologue here, really shows us and paints a picture of John the Baptist, and I hope that we can see some of the principles in his life so that we can be evangelists as well, a better evangelist as well. The book of Mark is, again, this is a book that highlights just the key information of the life of Jesus Christ. This is most likely, as scholars have said, the first gospel that was ever written. And it was the oldest manuscript, dates all the way back to 55 A.D., is written by Mark, and some in the scriptures as he's described also as John Mark. And um, he, John Mark, is not someone that was one of the 12 disciples, but rather he got his gospel from one of the 12 disciples. It's from Peter, and uh, there's an extra biblical account that states that Peter was the one who, who taught John Mark, and he wrote everything down, and around 55 AD, that's when you know, the early church was building, and there was a rise in persecution and by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, he allowed Peter to tell Mark and pen this gospel. So this is really unique because this is the first gospel. This is, um, the, the goal of this is to persuade people that Jesus Christ is God and that salvation is only found in him and him alone. John Mark, he's a very simple guy. And I, can, I think that because in the Greek is a very simple Greek. Uh, he doesn't use very complicated language, and I think that's a reflection of both John Mark and Peter. Peter was a fisherman before all of this, and he just basically used basic languages about Christ, and, and John Mark wrote everything down. Mark, in the book of Acts, is, um, he's, he, it says that he's a son of Mary in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, and in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, it tells us that he is actually um, Barnabas' brother. In fact, in the book of Acts, we see that he was actually on a missionary journey with Barnabas and Paul, and he, they went through all of these different places together to minister and to share the gospel. But there was a schism at one point. There was a divide between uh, Paul and John Mark. In the book of Acts, there was a, in Acts chapter 15, uh, there seems to be, there, before Paul's second missionary journey, uh, a divide here. John chapter, I mean, Acts chapter 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit, to the, to, uh, visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with, him, with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, become, uh, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord." So it seems to be, based on the context of Acts, that there was some divide. Mark probably got very scared at some point. He deserted Paul, and then Paul, during his second missionary journey, um, did not want to go with Mark anymore. Uh, he's like, he, he deserted me once, and he's probably going to do it again. Now, which is, again, by God's providence, I do find that's interesting that Mark, at some point, had met Peter. Because you can imagine what the conversation is like. You know, Peter and Mark were both cowards at a certain point. They both failed. They both failed. We all know about how Peter um, denied Jesus three times, and Mark, has, uh, and Mark failed at some point as well by deserting Paul, and they both had this fear. Now, just imagine the conversation that John, Mark, and Peter must have had. Mark probably just told Peter, like, yeah, he was ministering with Paul, and, and we just didn't work out because I was just afraid of the missionary journey. And Peter, I think, was very sympathetic. I would imagine him to be sympathetic because he knows what it's like to fail. He's denied the Savior three times. And I just think about the questions and the way to, or the way to shepherd Mark. I would imagine that Peter would just ask Mark the same question that Jesus asked him. Yes, you failed in these ways, but do you love Jesus? And at some point, we know that Mark was strengthened because at the end, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, Peter writes about uh, Peter writes about uh, John Mark. In fact, in Second Peter, this is you know one of la 
Paul's final letters, yet he writes here, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful for me, uh, for service, useful to me for service. Now, 2 Timothy was written about a decade later. So somewhere within the time when the gospel was written and when Paul was writing his letter, they reconciled, and Paul really wanted to see John Mark again. And I would again imagine, this is just me thinking about the, the totality of church history, I would imagine the thing that Paul wanted to hear was this gospel. He wanted to know or be reminded about Jesus once again. Now, it is an encouragement to know that someone like John Mark and Peter, who has failed so horribly in different times in history, that the Lord is still willing to use them in great ways. God uses those that has failed horribly still for his divine purposes. And there's a reminder for all of us that just because you failed in your life, just because there's some ministry that doesn't go right, or even if you failed morally in your life, that God can still use you. That even if you have failed horribly, God can still use you for his kingdom. Our God is a God of second chances. And all you have to do is once you realize that the areas you fall is just to repent. Turn from your failures the way John, Mark, and Peter has, and the Lord can still use you in unique and mighty ways. So as we get to this text, when the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, I want us to think and how we can be a faithful evangelist. Just like how all the other saints in the past have, I want us to look at this passage and really look at this picture and portrait of John, of John the Baptist and see how we can be evangelists ourselves. Let's look at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, it's interesting in the beginning, it says the beginning of the gospel. He's not, it's different from the other gospel in that in Luke, we see the genealogy as well as just kind of the, the birth of both John, uh, the, uh, John, the, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Uh, and that's cool because it's this longer history of that. It's like a history book. Uh, it isn't like uh, the, the, the gospel of John where it goes before, before time. It is, it's not just the beginning of time or the book of Matthew where, it's, where it speaks of the, the genealogy that that's, talks about the kingship of Christ. Here in Mark, he's saying the beginning of the gospel, meaning the, the beginning of his ministry. How do we mark the beginning of ministry? Is when John the Baptist came into the picture. It says here, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the word gospel is, 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 is something we're familiar with. It's the good news. And back then, the word was, originally it was used to describe when you give someone good news, and then once, the, you know, once you give a good news, the person that delivered good news will get a gift. So if I get, told you something nice, you'll give me money for it. That's what the original people, that, that's how the word was originally used. Later on, the word was just simply used to describe just the word good news. And it was also used for during the time of war, when the, when the people have won the war, they'll send someone back home and say, hey, the victory is here. Uh, we've, we've done it. We've won. The war is over. That's what the good news was back then. And as the Christians use this word, we transformed it to, to speak about how Jesus Christ and how in Christ we finally have victory. No more fear that we have in death. The sting of death is removed. And now, victory is ours in Jesus Christ. So this is here the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is a, it's a very common name. We don't usually use it in English. I, I don't know how many people I've known that have named their kid Jesus. Uh, but in this, you know, Spanish-speaking words, Jesus. But back then, in the New Testament time, that was a very common name. It was actually just Joshua. That's his human name, and Christ is the title. That's who he is. So when people understood he's, he's the Jesus Christ or the Messiah, the promised one, they understood what that meant, that he is Jesus, and his title is that he is the Messiah. And it describes him as the Son of God. This is the talks about his deity. He is fully man in terms of uh, his humanity, and he's also fully God. And you cannot accept and have the right gospel if you miss one of the two things. You can't, have, you can't be faithful to the Lord if you get this wrong about Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is not some, just a spirit floating the way that some, the cults in the past have said. No, he, is, he was fully man. He lived a, a life on this earth. And at the same time, you can't just say he's only a good person because that denies the fact that he is actually God. Jesus isn't just a good teacher. He is so much more than that. He isn't just a man because he's so much more than that. He is fully God and fully man. And you must get Christ right if you were to get the gospel right. 
if you want to be a good evangelist, this is one area that you need to understand, that when you're presenting the gospel with someone, you cannot deny the fact that he is fully God and fully man. Otherwise, the gospel is not complete. Because if Christ is not a man, he cannot represent uh, us before the Lord and, and vice versa. And because he's also the son of God, because he's deity as well, he can re- represent God before man. So he is both. And the gospel hinges on the fact that he is fully man and fully God. And if you want to be evangelist the way that John the Baptist was, he understood this. And, the, and all the gospel writers and every New Testament believer understand that God is completely and fully man and fully God. Paul writes about this in Philippians 2, that he condescended and lived that perfect life as a human, and he needed to be that for us in order, to be, or in order for us to be reconciled to him. Notice verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, Mark here, John Mark begins his writing by saying it's written in the Old Testament. And what's very fascinating here, the word written here, the, the, the tense or the idea is that something that's written in the past when with ongoing effects to the present day. So when he's writing this, he's saying that Jesus Christ, this prophecy of Isaiah, is written all the way in the past, and the impacts of all that affects them and affects us today. He's saying that this messenger, this passage that we see in Isaiah, although it's actually not just Isaiah, it's a mix between Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, without getting the details how this works, basically in both of those passages is used to describe uh, that there, before the Lord comes, there's going to be someone that will prepare that way. And it's designed because Israel has failed completely and there's no one else that re- represent him. And God promises that there will be this forerunner. This, there will be this one that will, that will let you know that the Messiah is coming. It says here that it's behold. He's trying to get the attention of the listener here. And it says that there, ahead of you, will, there's going to be this one that will repair your way. And later on, verse 3, it says, too, that he'll make your path straight. Now, back then, before a king visits somewhere, he'll send someone out. And this person will just go, let's say he's going to, let's say, SF to Oakland. If, the king, if somehow there was a king in San Francisco that wants to go to Oakland, he would go through all the streets that he would map out for the king. And, be, and not only that, but he'll make sure that there are no potholes. If there are potholes, you'll fill it. And if the roads are not, are like rocky, he'll pave it. And that's all intended so that, they, that the people know that the king is coming and he'll have a smooth trip there. I think the only equivalent I could think of is like, those, those red carpet things for celebrities. You know, those red carpets aren't always there throughout the, the years. It's only when there's like a movie premiere, then they'll roll out the carpets. That's like the same idea. Like they're, it, it's designed so that you know that there's going to be something important and someone important coming. And, there, and, and in the Old Testament passage here, he's saying that there is going to be this one coming, and you're supposed to anticipate and wait for this, this forerunner, this one that's supposed to go and declare and, and prepare the path for the Messiah. John will be the one shouting in the wilderness, and he's going to tell people to get to turn and be ready for Jesus. Now, verse 4, John the Baptist, we're familiar with who he is. In the book of Luke explains how he was really Jesus' cousin, um, and he's a son of Zacharias. That means he's, he's a priest, and um, he was supposed to go and really... Um, tell people about Jesus Christ. And what's fascinating about him, or at least this verse here in English, he's known as the Baptist. Um, the word Baptist is, I mean, it's accurate. It's, it means, uh, it's the, the Greek is baptismo, or uh, the idea here is to immerse into the water. So actually, if you think about, have you ever thought about why he's called John the Baptist in English? Because I was fascinated by this, con- uh, by this idea. You know, the word, the reason why we have this in the English is, is really because of King James. Not LeBron James, but the original guy. You know, King James, the only guy, the guy that translated the Bible in English. He did not want to change, change the word. Because the word Baptist is this idea of immersing underwater. And at the time, he was still holding on to some of the Lutheran sprinkling babies things. So he said, hey, when we translate the Bible, when we get to this verse, when we get to the Baptist, let's just keep it as the Baptist. Just keep it as, uh, as the Greek word, a transliterate. Um, because if you were to be 
accurate, you can actually say, you can actually mark and you cross out the word baptism, put John the immersing one. He, his job is to put people into the water, completely into the water, and bring them back out. Even the Legacy Standard Bible, the one that you know, John MacArthur and, and you know, the TMS staff uh, worked on, they, they kept the word Baptist, which I was hoping that they changed to the immersing one, because that's what it really is. That's the idea here, that John came to dip someone completely into the water. Maybe in the second version of the LSB, they'll, they'll change that. But here, here, John the Baptist, he says here, he appeared in the wilderness, just like how the, prophet, the, the scripture said, that he appeared in the wilderness preaching the baptism of forgiveness for the forgiveness of sin, baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now, all of this is fulfillment of scripture. Uh, we can trust in scripture because scripture is God's word, and all of God's, words, and all of God's promises gets fulfilled, numbers or not, sorry, not numbers, Joshua chapter 21. This is a passage about how once they're going to enter into the land, they're going to divide all the land up to different Levites and to different people. And at the end, Joshua 21 verse 45 reads, not one of the good promises of the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. In 1 Kings chapter 8 this is after Solomon built the temple and the ark was going back into the temple. It says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promises which he promised through Moses, his servant. And jumping to the New Testament, just for continuity, that we understand that God always keeps his promise. Romans chapter 4, verse 21 this is regarding uh, salvation and how we have, that our salvation comes from faith uh, in the Lord. It says here, Romans chapter 4, verse 21, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was, he was also able to perform. Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews tried to encourage the people from denying the faith, says this in chapter 10, verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. God's word is always going to be fulfilled. And when we see instances like this, how John the Baptist is fulfilling this prophecy here 400 years beforehand, we can know with absolute assurance that God will fulfill every single one of his promises. There are still promises in scripture that has yet to be fulfilled, and there are a lot of things that we can still look forward to. And it's those promises that's in Scripture that we need to cling on to. Holding on to God's promises is just part of the Christian life. You're going to have moments where you're struggling with your faith. And if you want to be a strong and faithful evangelist, you need to preach and evangelize to people with the assurance of God's faithfulness through his word. You need to teach with confidence, knowing that God will fulfill every single one of his promises. The last two verses of the Old Testament highlights the same thing about there's this coming forerunner. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with the curse. Now, it's fascinating that the last two verses of the Old Testament ends that way because if you were to read the entire scriptures like a literature book, the way that a lot of secular people want to read, you'll notice that that reference is going to be fulfilled in John the Baptist. It should be familiar to you if you're reading through the Bible as just like a storybook because it connects. There's something that happened in the past that God has said and is going to be fulfilled, and it gets fulfilled here with John the Baptist. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you know that this verse is a major event, that the original audience understood that. There's a reason why John Mark wrote this by the work of the Holy Spirit, to remind the people and to show them that John the Baptist is part of God's redemptive plan, that he is going to fulfill his plan. And here is the beginning of that, that the first coming of Jesus Christ is going to be evident by the coming of the forerunner. And that is actually why many people came to go and hear John preach. That was a question you need to ask yourself. Do you trust in God, the promises of God? 
all of the things, from the micro things in this life, but how if you continue to grow and love the Lord, you'll fight and have victory over sin. Do you believe in those promises? All the way to the macro things, like the book of Revelation. Do you believe that there is one day going to be a new heavens and a new earth? As, as hard as even those passages may be, do you believe in faith that everything that the Lord has said is going to come true? Do you believe even those passages where the Lord said that he will not let the devil overthrow the church? So there's no fear about the persecution that is to come for us. We know as Christians that God's word is faithful because God himself is faithful. And it's evident here. John the Baptist appears in the wilderness, just like the scripture has said, preaching the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The word here, baptism of repentance, it seems interesting to us. Or it's not that interesting to us because we're so used to baptisms. But back then, it was a very, it was a very provocative thing. Because usually, Gentiles were the ones that would get baptized. They would be the one, if they wanted to be part of Judaism, what they would do, there's three things that they would do. First is circumcision. Um, if you're a male, there's a you know, cutting of the foreskin to show that you're now part of the covenant people of God. And second, there will be some sort of animal sacrifice that's needed so that you can be made right so the, your sins could be atoned for. And then lastly, there's the ceremonial cleansing, which is baptism here. But what is fascinating is that Jewish people were coming to John. There were not, it wasn't just Gentile people coming to John, but Jewish people wanted to, they understood that they need to be made right with the Lord. There was a sense in which the religious system was corrupted and it didn't fully represent God anymore. And John the Baptist was here telling people to repent. You can't be a good evangelist if you don't call people to repent of their sin. There needs to be acknowledgement when you're sharing the gospel with someone that there is sin. They need to know what sin is, not according to what their mind is, but according to what scripture has to say. John, if you look through the Gospels, he's called out people for adultery. He's called out the spiritual hypocrisy. He's called out every single sin uh, that's possible and that we have in Scripture. And he was killed for it because he knows that in order for you to honor the Lord, you need to turn away from sin. When we call people to sin, uh, to repentance, we can't call people to repent based on their own terms. That's how the world thinks about evangelism. When you try to share the gospel with someone, eventually they're going to say things like, well, I'm not a bad guy. I'm a good person. They start defining goodness and things that are bad based on their own terms. That's not how it goes. When we call out sin, we only call out sin not because of our own self-righteousness, our own preferences, or anything like that. The only reason that we have authority to say that this is sin is because God has said so. You know, in the, the last few weeks, I mean, I was just down in L.A., and I don't know if you guys heard about how Canada now has this law that passed, and it was actually basically enacted and active last Sunday about how you're not, any churches that decide to preach against homosexuality or transgenderism or, or anything with the LGBTQ movements, if they preach against it, if they try to convert people out of those things, then there's going to be a five-year prison sentence for them. Now, that's maybe unique to Canada, but it's not unique here. I mean, this is, that's a law that's been passed here in America. But all those pastors in Canada are now, you know, they're, they're united here, and they're all going to preach the gospel, and they're going to say that this is a sin. And the reason why that is is because they said this is against God's word, and they're calling people to repent. Uh, MacArthur called it, he's, they're going to call it the Sunday Conversion Sundays, because their hope is that people will see that they cannot define righteousness based on their own terms. Understand that when we do evangelism, it's going to be the same thing. When we share the gospel with people, it's not based on what other people think what right and wrong is. We need to know God's word and we need to speak with clarity that these things are sin, but there is hope in the Lord. You call people to repentance because we know that God is a standard of morality and we've all fallen short of that. John here is faithful in calling people to repentance. Now, I hope that that will be characteristic of you when you do your evangelism to, other, to, to those non-believers in your life, that you stand boldly and humbly, call people to repentance by calling out their sin as well. And all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, 
they were here, and, and it's, it's fascinating when you look at a map. I wish I had, I don't usually have PowerPoint, but this is one of the rare times I wish I had a picture or a map. But if you think about where Jerusalem and Judea is, some people argue where, uh, where the Jordan might be or where uh, Jerusalem and Judea is. Let's just assume for a second that the shortest route, if it's the shortest amount of distance, it'll take about a day to get there. But the longest time from wherever, however you map it out, it'll take about four days. People heard about this prophet in the wilderness crying out for people to repent. And they were willing to travel as short as a day to four days to hear about how they could be made right with God. They wanted to know uh, how to be close to him. And it's interesting that it says Judea and Jerusalem. It's weird because that's almost like saying, if we're used in the Bay Area terms, like the, 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 the country, it was saying all of Bay Area and San Francisco. So what was in San Francisco part of the Bay Area? Why would they speak in this? Why would they write it like this? And the idea here, though, is that Judea, that's where all the commoners are. That's where they usually, it's like saying Oakland or something like that. And then Jerusalem's like San Francisco, like the elites. You know, it's saying that everyone from every class, social class, wants to hear the gospel. Everyone from the, the wealthiest, those that are um, higher up in society, to the lowly of low people, all gathered and, and moved to hear this person in the wilderness crying out for them to repent. And just understand, like, I remember when I did my first baptism here at SFBC, I, I think I baptized like 12 people. I, my back was hurting, the water was, was like running out, you know, but you know, that, I thought that was difficult. But imagine John the Baptist, like thousands of people. He's out there telling people, hey, I'm the Messiah is coming. You need to prepare your heart for this, and then he'll baptize them. He did it over and over and over again, and, and people were confessing their sins. They acknowledge that they are in desperate need of a Savior. You, are you like John the Baptist here? There's just a principle that we see here that John the Baptist did not care who came to him. There were people from the lower class and upper class. He just shared the same gospel. He was preaching hard against sin. And he's telling people to confess their sins. Now, you have to understand that sometimes when we do evangelism, we, we get timid when we talk to certain people. So if there's someone that's a higher in our workplace, we, we tend to talk in a much more calm sense because we don't want to get fired. But when it comes to the things like the gospel, you have to speak with clarity and without any discrimination. You just preach the gospel. You don't, you're not going to soften it just because the person has power over you, and you're not going to go hard on someone that, you have, that has no leverage over you. You're called to preach the gospel and, and, and to preach it boldly because that's what the gospel, because that's what the gospel is. It's, it's an it's a urgent call for people to repent. And John the Baptist did just that. He was just preaching and telling people, baptizing them in the Jordan River, and there people were, all of these people were confessing their sins. Now I understand that our problem isn't so much that, you know, you know there are people, there are, I think my biggest fear for our church is that we don't even go out in general. So, you know, this is really like a first step for us is that we need to make a list of people in our life to go evangelize to. You know, there should be some people in our life that we're thinking about, that we're praying about, that we're asking the Lord to give us wisdom and opportunity to share the gospel with. Because that's why we're here. We're here to go and tell the gospel and to proclaim it to everyone, whether they're from the upper class of people or the lower class. Wherever we are, we're called to go and share the gospel. Many people love to be part of great evangelistic movements, but they aren't willing to evangelize at all. But John the Baptist here, he went all out. and He did it because he loved the Lord. He wanted other people to come to saving faith. Verse 6. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Now, he, if you look at this, it sounds weird, right? I mean, if you look at the, even the kids' drawings of John the Baptist, he's like this very, you know, he's wearing this very hairy uh, coat, uh, kind of like a, yeah, little, little jacket, and with a leather belt around his waist. It seems like he just wants to be weird. And I remember actually talking to someone that said, I want to find like this kind of like a, this camel's hair coat so that I could look like John the Baptist. And I'm like, that's not the point of what he was trying to do because this is significant because Elijah dressed like this. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, 
Elijah is described in the same way. So when John the Baptist is wearing all of this, he's, he's really evoking the same image that Elijah is doing. Elijah was known as a forerunner. He's telling people about, uh, uh, to repent. He's telling Israel to turn from their sins. That's exactly what John the Baptist is doing. So he's not doing this for, just to make some sort of fashion statements. He's actually doing this so that people can know that the, he is this prophet that's will go and tell people about Jesus Christ. At the same time, he wanted to dress like a legitimate prophet because at the time, the priests were trying to dress in such a way that made themselves look great. They wanted to look like they were, that they were so separate and, and, and out of this you know, beyond reach kind of thing. So they dressed very you know, elaborately so that people can think, oh, wow, these, these uh, Pharisees are so spiritual and beyond us. But you hear John the Baptist is actually dressing the garb of a prophet so that people can truly turn from their sins. At the time, people did not take religion seriously. People did not take uh, the faith or you know, Yahwehism or the Old Testament Judaism seriously. Everyone um, was doing what's right in their own eyes, even though they claimed to do things in the name of Yahweh. And even, and even the Pharisees, who you know, the Sadducees, all these people, at one point it seemed like they were legit, and then and as time progressed, they loved their power and they lorded it over people. But John the Baptist, everyone feared him. People feared him so much that they actually thought that he was a Messiah. But that was not the case for him. In fact, Jesus spoke about him in Matthew chapter 11, verse 8. Matthew chapter 11, verse 8 to 15. But what did you go out and see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, the one who is more than a prophet. This is the one whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is the least of the kingdom is greater than he. And John the Baptist was the best at what he was doing. He was known as, he's really a lot of ways a final prophet. And, and Jesus is saying that, you know, those people are dressed nicely, yeah, they belong in the king's palace. But the one that's a forerunner, he's in the wilderness dressed in camel's hair. This is, again, it's supposed to show the people that he's dressed differently because he worshipped differently. He taught differently because he, he, he knew the truth. He took God seriously. He had both the doctrine, and godly living. Can you say that about your own life? In your own life, are you different? I'm not saying that you all need to dress up like John the Baptist and wear you know, camel's hair. I'm just saying just in your own conduct, in the way that you think, in the way that you talk to people, in the way that you buy groceries, in the way that you drive in the, in the streets. Is your life different from the rest of the world? Now, you're not, I'm not telling you to be different for the sake of being different because some of you are different. And I'm telling you to stand out for the sake of individualism. But you want to stand out because you represent a God that is holy and different from the world. Faithfulness to Christ will either draw people to you because they're drawn to the Lord or it will repel people uh, from you because you look like the Lord. They either want to steer their conscience or they want to have nothing to do with you or they're drawn to him. Or do, you can call, or do you call yourself a Christian and people are drawn to your God? Because if you call yourself a Christian and you live in sin and they're drawn to you, then there's something wrong there. That means you're living in sin and in hypocrisy. People should love or hate you because of your faithfulness. They shouldn't love and hate God because of your sin. This is where 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 to 16 reminds us. Paul, when he's speaking with the Corinthians, who are living in utter debauchery. He tells them this, 2 Corinthians chapter 14, 16, but thanks be God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death and to, to an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? There is a reality that if we are like John the Baptist, if we try to live 
faithfully, that means that we are worshiping differently as well, that we worship a God that's different from the world. If sin makes people love the God that you worship, that means that you're worshiping a false God. You're allowing things, that you're attributing things to God that is not truly from God. This is, again, one of the seven churches of Revelations when they were worshiping, they bought into the lives of the Nicolaitans. These Nicolaitans were people that claimed to be Christians. You could have all the things, the name of Christianity, but their sexual ethics is that of the world. They're corrupted in their own ways. And God is offended by that. God hates it when you defile his name by claiming and attributing to God things that God does not permit. John the Baptist lived such a different life from the Pharisees. The Pharisees claimed to be this way. They didn't care about widows. They didn't care about those that are are the orphans. They didn't care about those that um, that are afflicted and in need. They just care about their status. But John the Baptist was in the wilderness proclaiming and teaching uh, truth and live differently. And I hope that's our life as well. And we think about our life, that our life should be radically different from the world. If you want to be a strong evangelist, you have to live out what the things that you teach. Otherwise, people won't take Christianity seriously. And I do believe that part of the reason why Christianity has lost so much influence in the years is because they start looking like the world. The way that they live, they just call it as Christian liberty, but we're, that we, we allow so much compromises in our life that we're really no different from the world. And I hope that in this church and that every single one of us will live and live life in such a way that's just so radically different that people will notice that they worship a God that's different from everything that we've seen. Verse 7, and he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. John the Baptist has this humility here. He's saying there's going to be one that's greater, mightier, more capable. That's what the word mightier means. It's that someone just more sufficient, someone that's better than I in every single way. He's so great that he doesn't even believe that he can untie the sandals. And there's this contrast here between John and Jesus. John was a man where Jesus is the, is the God-man. John was just one like the groomsmen, as he describes himself, where Jesus is the groom. John is finite. Jesus is infinite. John is he's mighty in power, but Jesus is almighty. John is temporal. Jesus is eternal. John is sinful, and Jesus is sinless. He understands that he is not worthy to even take off the sandals of this Savior. And that's a very humbling thing, you know, to take off someone's shoe and to wash their feet. It's like the thing that the lowest of people uh, can do in a society in that time. That's what slaves would do. But he's saying even that low gesture is too high for him. He does not deserve to do something that lowly because it's to elevate the fact that Jesus is so mighty and he's so great There's this humble recognition that John has, that he realized how small he is and relative to Jesus Christ. We live in a culture that does not take Jesus seriously. You know, they see Jesus, oh, he's my homeboy, he's just my friend. I mean, yes, he is our friend in that way, but we've diminished Jesus. We've made him just just like someone someone that's common, but God, our Lord, Jesus Christ, is not common. He is holy. He is distinct. And the way that we talk and think about Jesus must be like that as well. Christians must be humble people. True Christians know their own limitations. And for us as people that are in the Reformed camp, that we believe in Calvinism or whatever you want to call it, we, it's, a, it's a contradiction for us who believes in God's sovereignty in saving us and redeeming us that called us before the foundation of the world to be proud. Because we acknowledge that there's nothing in us worthy enough for God to save us. But yet, in our lives, isn't it so easy for pride to manifest itself? You know, sometimes we speak so highly of ourselves. We talk about our weeks and things that we've accomplished this last week. Or you do the other way where you speak, you have the self-pity-like attitude. And and what, what makes both too prideful is that you're basically talking about yourself. You love talking about yourself. It's all about me, 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 me. Or another way that, that pride manifests into the way that we associate ourselves. Like, oh, I'm friends with so-and-so, or I know these kind of people. I am with that kind of crowd. 
those are all pride, those are, that's all pride talking. And why do we like that? It's because we like to elevate ourselves. John the Baptist here is just saying, like, no, it doesn't even matter. It's all about Jesus Christ. If you want to be a strong and faithful evangelist, you need to have a humble attitude. You need to think lowly of yourself. And this is what Romans chapter 12 tells us, to not to think too highly of ourselves. Anything that elevates you, anything that you do in pride is a way to rob God of his glory. And we're all tempted to do things like that because all of us in our fallen states loves to glorify ourselves and have self-worth. Again, that's very anti-culture, right? In in our individualistic culture, it's all about your individuality, your identity, all of those things. But as Christians, we humble ourselves knowing that our identity is found in this Lord that we are not even worthy to call our Lord. We understand our depravity. We understand our sinfulness, and we don't deserve to be called his children. But yet in his love and his kindness towards us, we are worthy, not by our own worth, but by the work of the Lord. He attributes to us his righteousness, righteousness and holiness, and that's the only reason why we have any worth. John was an effective evangelist because he understood his place in redemptive history. He knew that he was all that he is is because of God, and he was a humble individual. He humbly trusted the Lord, and he was humbled because he understood his own circumstance. He knew he did not deserve God's grace and kindness. Now, I hope that is for us as well, that if we understand these doctrines, that it will humble us because we know we are unworthy of God's kindness and love in our life. Verse 8, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a contrast here, but the, the baptism that John baptized was, was really just uh, paving the way to get people to get ready for the Lord. Uh, He's just preparing people to receive Jesus. Jesus actually saved them while John just washed them physically. Uh, When John washed them physically, Jesus washed them spiritually. And this is, again, just preparing them so that when they see Jesus, that they'll look to him. That they understand, like, "I I am that unworthy sinner. Please save me. Now, you know, as Christians, that is our job, too. We don't really save anyone. We just tell the gospel, we point to Jesus who actually is the one that's going to save them, who's going to baptize them with the Holy Spirit. What that means is that the Holy Spirit enters into you the moment you become a believer. That regenerating work of the Lord is all because of his doing. All we do is just faithfully proclaim. You cannot save anyone in your life. All you can do is just prepare people to receive Jesus Christ. Some of you are going to be parents or some of you guys are parents and you understand that. You cannot save your own kids. The only thing you can do is faithfully shepherd and teach and share the gospel with them. You trust the, the, the fruit to the Lord. Some of you have friends and family members and parents that are not believers. And you're pleading and begging with them. And that's a good thing. You're just, but the, just understand that their salvation is not on you. You cannot cause the growth. Because I think if we were able to do that, we'll try to steal glory from the Lord. We can say, oh, see, look, it's this thing that I said to them, or it's this, these arguments that I've made. These are the reason why they get saved. But that's not the case. We know that God is the only one that can change them. God is the only one that can remove the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. Our job is like John the Baptist. We just go and tell people about Jesus, and we just prepare the way so that the Lord can work in their hearts. When we think about preparation to be evangelists, understand that you come here on Friday nights, on Sunday morning, or wherever you have your devotional times, that you do every time you, you open God's word, every time you meditate, you read God's word. These are all different ways in which God is preparing you to be effective evangelists in the world. John the Baptist gave us a great template on how to do that. And I hope that if you want to be a strong evangelist, that you will take some of the principles that we laid out here. You see that he lived what he actually believed, that he was a humble person that trusted in the Lord, and that everything that he did was in faithful, faithful accordance to God's word. And when you are those things and you preach God's word faithfully, that's how God will use you as an effective evangelist. So I hope that as we enter this new year, that that's going to be the case for all of us. 
that you pray and you ask the Lord to provide opportunities for you to share the gospel. And from, that, from the point before you even get a chance to share the gospel, you live faithfully for him. That, that when, people, when, you, when you have those opportunities, people can tell that you live differently because you worship a living God. And I hope that that's, again, this is not saying that me, I know I'm literally higher than you in preaching down, but like this is something that I need to work on as well. I know that I need to make time to win the people, to share the gospel with people, whether it's my neighborhood or, or whoever, that I need, to make, I need to prioritize evangelism because that's what we're here for, right? We're here to go and tell the good news of Jesus Christ in a dying and lost world. Let's pray. Lord God, we offer our lives to you knowing that the reason why we have a single breath is because of your grace. Lord, may we look at John the Baptist and see what a faithful individual in, in, his, in his obedience to you and his declaration and boldness of calling people to repentance. Lord, we know we fall short. We are often very timid and scared or lazy and apathetic when it comes to evangelism. I do hope, Lord, that, that, we, that you work in our hearts and we confess to you that we're not always as intentional as we should be. Lord, help us in this area. We want people to, to know you. We want people to ultimately be saved and be made right with you. We know we can do nothing without your enablement. Give us boldness in our declaration and give us holy lives so that we can honor you. Lord, may you receive all the glory in all that we do. And may we be a humble people that understand our worth is not of our own because you've attributed to us through the work of your son. Thank you, your son's precious name. Amen. All right, so we have some discussion. Uh, when you break up into discussion groups, here are just the two questions that we have. And again, really the second one is one I want us to think a lot more about. You know, we can say that we want to be evangelists, but what are practical ways in which we can do that? Um, you know, there, is there family members that you're praying for, coworkers, classmates, especially for you that are students? I do hope that, I know that, I don't know how many of you are, are able to meet in person, um, but I do hope that at least you start developing friendships and invite them out to church or, you know, share the gospel with them or, you know, coworkers, whoever it may be, uh, that you're thinking about people in your life uh, that you can go and share the gospel with. Um, you know, we're called to, Redeem the time for the days are evil, and we want to do that. We want to redeem uh, that, and one of the ways that we do it is through evangelism. So that's the second question. First question, you know, as I walked through this text, I gave some principles and just kind of applicational things, looking at the life of John the Baptist, and hopefully those things were areas in which you can see, okay, yeah, I need to grow in these areas as well. Again, this is not just for you, this is for me as well. As I was reading through and studying this, I was convicted the fact by a lot of things, in this text, so we're all in this together and working out our salvation. So, you know, as you break up your groups, uh, just talk over the things that you learned from this passage about John the Baptist, and then, and then keep each other accountable. You know, list the person that you can, hey, can you pray for me as I try to talk with so-and-so about the gospel? And, you know, that way as we go through the book of Mark, um, you know, we have other people that can encourage us to share the gospel uh, too. All right, thank you guys. Have a good night.